Lord, we pray this morning that you would bless the, the preaching of your word. We know, Lord, there's nothing wrong with your word. And so, uh, God, as we open the Bible, make it come alive to us again in a fresh new way. Lord, from an Old Testament passage, may we see you in a very new and clear way this morning. Help us, Lord, to celebrate who you are and what you've done for us, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. We got back last night from a, a week of camping in the, in the Ozark Mountains. Um, it, was, it was really cool. We, we, had a, we had a really good time. We took the whole, the whole family, all six of us went, and we left Sunday, last Sunday about 3 o'clock. We got back last night about 6, and we spent the whole week just camping out, and it was really, the accommodations were, were better than we anticipated. We had our little key card. You just put it right in the door. You walk in. We had a two-bedroom condo. We were camping out. <laughs> Camping out in style, and y'all, y'all are thinking, "What? If you ever been here before, you know it. Camping out ain't it? Ain't me? Um, not me. I, uh, you know, I, I, I grew up in the city, and um, and that's good enough for me most of the time. To be honest with you, I like running water and indoor plumbing and things like that, air conditioning and so on. Uh, camping out. Uh, listen, some of you really get into it, and I'm proud of you, and that's good. But it's just not for me. I feel so helpless when I when I when I'm you know away from all those things. And so this week we we did go to the Ozark Mountain area, but we were in Branson, and so not exactly camping out. But you know, I, I did when I was a teenager though, and then when I was youth minister, I did go to camp every summer. So some of you just you know, you know I'll throw you a bone here. I I went to camp every summer. We went to a place in the Blue Ridge Mountains uh, over in in North Georgia. And, and we didn't stay in tents, you know, we wasn't really rough in it. We did have some indoor plumbing and they, they cooked some good meals for us, but, but we were in cabins and they didn't have a central heat and air and all that kind of stuff. So it was a little bit different and, and it was always interesting. There's just something about being there. And those of you that, that like to be outdoors and you like going camping and doing those things, there's something about just being, being outdoors and, and being away from your typical routine, being closer to nature or whatever, I, you know, focused on some different things. And and so uh, camp was always fun like that. It was a simpler week. Every time we, we went, it was a relaxed week. You're very mindful of things. And those of you that maybe have memories of going to camp when you were when you were younger or maybe you like to camp out with your family, you know, those are some of the things that you're focused on. Now, today's focus from the Scripture is going to be on something just like that. When God commanded the Israelites to camp out for a week to commemorate and be reminded of what he had done for them. So if you got your Bible handy, uh, turn with me to Leviticus chapter 23. Catch you up to speed real quick on where we've been over the last several weeks. We've been in Leviticus. Uh, I've been preaching. So, somebody told me not long ago, I don't think I've ever heard a sermon on Leviticus. And um, that's because it can get a little confusing sometimes. And and uh, but, but what we're doing is leading up to, on November 6th, our church's 170th anniversary celebration. That'll be here in just a short few weeks. And so we've been talking about the idea of celebrating. And we've looked in the Old Testament at what God called the Israelites to celebrate. Several different things about God, who he was, what he did for them. That they were to each year take time to pause, stop, and celebrate what God had done. And so we've looked at, at several of those uh, throughout the last few weeks. We'll look at a few more as we lead up to November 6th. Today's is one that, uh, that was a long uh, celebration, a long festival as we'll see 
as we look at the scriptures. I want to kind of work through this just a little bit and then give us some principles, hopefully that will help us. And then something to do this week that's not on your outline. So when I get to the very end, I want you to hold on with me. Don't pack up and get ready to leave. I used to teach school and they, you know, you knew the class was over when they all start shuffling their papers and they look at the, you know, the bell's getting ready to ring. You know, church is over when you close your Bible and you're, you're done. Okay. You already bow your head to pray. All right. So hang with me as we get to the end. Look with me in Leviticus chapter 23. Look at verse 33. The Lord spoke to Moses and he said this, Tell the Israelites, the festival of booths to the Lord begins on the 15th day of this seventh month and continues for seven days. Now, hold on there for just a second. The festival of booths, it was called. Uh, other versions might call it the festival of ingathering. It was at the very end of all the harvest. It was the fourth festival of the year. And it came five days after the festival we looked at last week, which was known as the Day of Atonement. So it came five days after. And the festival of booths, the Feast of Booths, was a dramatic shift in tone from the Day of Atonement. If you are here with us last week, you know we talked a lot about... The Day of Atonement was a very somber, solemn kind of day. It was a day of mourning over their sin and repenting and reflecting on what had happened the last year. And it was the one day of the year when the priest went to the Holy of Holies in the temple, in the tabernacle. And he once a year would appear before the Lord to make a sacrifice on behalf of all the sin for himself, his family, and all the people of Israel for the past year. So it was a very serious and somber day. The Festival of Booths was a very different kind of experience. It was more of a party atmosphere, a dramatic change in tone. It was really the most fun of all of the Israelite feasts, a complete change in everything that they were doing. Let's, let's continue. Look at verse 35. There is to be a sacred assembly on the first day. You are not to do any daily works. So the first day begins with really kind of a worship service. That's the best we could equate it to. They have a giant worship service. They all gather together, a solemn assembly. They're in prayer. Uh, they're talking to the Lord. They're reflecting on, on his goodness in their lives and so on. And they are not to do any of their daily work. So it involves Sabbath rest, a complete change of routine and no chores. And I'm sure the, the young people, the kids probably love that particular day. They said, hey, you know what, mom and dad, look, God said no chores today. Now, listen, I, you know, I, I, young people, I'll give, you, I'll give you a little bit. We talked a few weeks ago about Sabbath rest. And um, I'm going to get myself in trouble. Um, one day a week, it's okay to rest. But not seven days a week, okay? It's not seven. One day a week is okay to, to not do your normal routine. You can tell your folks that the preacher said on behalf of God that one day a week can be set aside to just break the routine, not do all the daily stuff that you normally, not all the chores, but then your parents are going to tell you, well, that's fine. But he also said not seven days a week can you do that. Not every day is a Sabbath, okay? All right, just so you know, we got to have some agreement. Anyway, kids probably love this time. Verse 35, there is no work to be done on that day. It goes on in verse 36. You are to present a fire offering to the Lord for seven days. On the eighth day, you are to hold a sacred assembly and present a fire offering to the Lord. It is a solemn gathering. You are not to do any daily work. So so it's kind of bookended here. It says for seven days, present this fire offering. So as long as the feast is going on, this this fire was to be burning. And, and, and maybe if you went to camp years ago, you remember, you know, you had the campfire at night and you roast your marshmallows and you have your s'mores and whatever. And everybody cries and sing kumbaya and they throw sticks in the fire and make commitments they're not going to keep and all that kind of stuff. That's what you do at camp, right? And so so anyway, uh, that, that the fire was going. They, they've got this bonfire. So they're, they're reminded the whole time that God's presence is with them. If you remember from the story of the Old Testament... When the Israelites traveled through the wilderness, 
They had a a fire to guide them by night. And so this whole time, they're reminded of God's presence and what he has done for them. This, of course, this feast of booths would happen after they would be delivered from the wilderness and already in the promised land. So they're going to look back and be reminded by this fire of the presence of God. The eighth day, it says, was also a day of worship and, and a day of Sabbath. And so you have at the beginning and the end, bookended, these days of rest, these days of worship, and a big feast, a big festival, a celebration in the middle. Let's go on and look at verse, uh, skip to verse 39. You are to celebrate the Lord's festival on the 15th day of the seventh month for seven days after you have gathered the produce of the land. There will be complete rest on the first day and complete rest on the eighth day. So a little bit of a summary, and it highlights the fact that it's after the harvest. So the grape harvest would have been last, and this is after all the harvest is done. Look at verse 40. On the first day, you were to take the the product of majestic trees, palm fronds, boughs of leafy trees, and willows of the brook, and rejoice before the Lord your God for seven days. So again, the idea of rejoicing before the Lord, it's a celebration. You are to celebrate it as a festival to the Lord seven days each year. This is a permanent statute for you throughout your generations. You must celebrate it in the seventh month. And then look at verse 42, and we get really the idea of here's how they are to celebrate it. Here's what they are to do. You are to live in booths for seven days. All the native born of Israel must live in booths so that your generations may know that I made the Israelites live in booths when I brought them out of the land of Egypt. So we get the idea, these, these booths, if you can picture this, were sort of makeshift tents. They would make out of these different leaves and branches from the trees that God said, go pick uh, branches off of these trees and construct for yourself something similar to what they would have lived in out in the wilderness so many years ago. And so it's like if you went, took your family, and you go to Branson for a week to stay in the two-room condo. That's that's it's not, not exactly. But anyway, you have a tent, and you've got, you're roughing it, basically. So they, they had some modern conveniences back then. They're in a Bronze Age. They had some bronze and stuff. They had some modern conveniences. And so they were to break from their routine, go out into the wilderness, build themselves this little hut out of these limbs and branches, and live in it for a week with all their family. And that's terrifying, isn't it? Um, anyway, uh, they're to live in booths. You, you, come on, you wake up just a little bit. You're killing me. Um, Eddie Clyde's with me. We're wearing the same thing today. Eddie Clyde's with me. That's good. One of you. Anyway, so part of the idea of, of this, this festival was for them to break the routine, get out, go out in the wilderness essentially, and camp out for a full week and to think about and commemorate what God had done. And, and you know, when you, when you do those kinds of things, when you are sort of going to camp or camping out, uh, you really do separate yourself from your normal routine. Almost, you, you almost go back in time a little bit. I, I, there's no, you know, some, some of the places you go, there's no cell phone service. Uh, you know, you can't check email. There's no social media. You don't hear all the ads for presidential candidates and so on and so forth. Thank God for that. Um, you know, when, I, when we went to camp when I was a teenager, and then especially when I was a youth minister, we went to this place called Willow Falls Camp, and and for a week, I would just break from everything that I normally did. I didn't shave for a week. Uh, I didn't shower for a week, literally. Didn't shower. Yeah, it was, it was bad. 
um, we, we did lots of new things. In fact, I, I, there was a little lake there, and we used to bathe there in the lake, fully clothed, but we would, you know, we would bathe in the lake. We'd just kind of rub some soap on us and stuff until they told us that was bad for the fish. We were killing the fish or something. And so then I said, well, fine, I just won't take a shower. And they said, that's worse for the fish. You know, anyway, um, so so we would do different things. We, we went whitewater rafting while we were there on the Okoe River. It was a really neat deal. We went rappelling, not repelling. That was the that was for me not taking a shower, but rappelling, you know, where you're on a rope down the rock kind of thing. Uh, we, we would take a lazy float down the river, the Tacoa River, on, on some inner tubes and so on. We just did lots of different things that, that weren't regular for our routine. And so we took a bunch of city kids out of southwest Louisville down to the mountains and broke their routine. And God says to the Israelites, that's what I want you to do for a full week. And the reason is, he said in verse 43, so that your generations may know that I made the Israelites live in booths when I brought them out of the land of Egypt. He wanted them to know. He wanted them to pass it along, to tell the stories of what had happened. So for them, it was this reminder that God had had made them live in temporary shelters when he led them toward the promised land. For 40 years, he took care of them out in the wilderness. And it was a reminder of what happened. It pointed to what they had experienced as a nation before and during and after all that time. And every time I went to camp, when I was a teenager, and then leading that same group years later, it was a time of spiritual focus. And I joke about sitting around the campfire and making commitments you're not going to keep and crying and so on and so forth. But certainly for many kids, it was a time to refresh a commitment. It was a time to make a first-time commitment to the Lord. It was a time of spiritual focus, a time of worship, a time to think, a time to contemplate. And it was always interesting to see the kids the first couple of days when I first took over as a youth minister at my home church several years ago, the previous year, they had gone to Panama City Beach for, for camp. And I said, that's vacation. That's not camp. We're not going to the beach for camp. I'm sorry. I love you, but we're not going there. And so I took a handful of kids, disgruntled kids. I took a handful of disgruntled kids to Georgia for camp, and they hated me for the first two days. Because they didn't have their phones, and they, they couldn't contact their friends like they wanted to, and they were without their own beds and their gaming systems and whatever else they forgot to bring with them, a toothbrush and so on. They were without those things for the full week, and it was just them, sort of exposed, if you will, with nothing to do. You ever seen teenagers with nothing to do? That look on their face? But as the week went on, as they felt helpless physically, they began to recognize their helplessness spiritually. And inevitably, several of the kids, and many of the adults as well, would be reminded again of what they were and who they are without the saving grace of Jesus. They, they would have to admit again the basic problem that we all have, that we are helpless. Our basic problem when we go camping, at least for me, is I feel absolutely helpless. You mean I don't have electricity? Nope. You, you mean I, I don't have the running water? Nope. You mean we don't have indoor plumbing? Nope. We don't have all of those things that we're accustomed to? Nope. I feel helpless. And those kids were reminded of those things. And yet, in a greater sense, they were reminded of their spiritual helplessness. And really, that was what the point of camp was was to get them away from where they were normally and remind them again of who they are apart from the Lord. We are helpless on our own. 
And the festival of booths, as the Lord commanded them to do in Leviticus 23, that was the purpose of that as well. Let's get them out, remind them of, again of who they are apart from me. We're helpless. Think about it. All the things that we can't control, that we didn't create. You know, we didn't cause ourselves to be born. Think about it. You did not will yourself to life. You had no choice in the matter, did you? You are alive by no fault of your own. You didn't do it. You didn't choose when you would be born. There are some times when I think, I really wish, Lord, I'd have been born at a different time. God, I don't want to deal with the problems of the world as they are today. I really don't. Not as a grown-up. You know, I, I just, God, I, I really wish you'd, you'd allowed me to be born at a different time. But guess what? I didn't get to choose, did I? And here I am. In a time that maybe I wouldn't pick. You know, you, you didn't get to choose to whom you were born. Some of you had great parents. Some of you didn't. Some of you had wonderful families. Some of you didn't. You didn't get to choose that, did you? Nobody gets to choose their biological parents. We didn't get to choose the families we had growing up. They were just there. You know, your crazy uncle, you didn't choose that guy. You know, or both, or several, however many you had. I had somebody introduce himself to me the other day. He said, I'm the crazy uncle. I said, all right, I got a couple, but maybe I'm the crazy uncle to somebody. I don't know. You know, we didn't bless ourselves with the level of intelligence or beauty or athleticism or even the personality that you have. You're just born with it. It's just the way that it is. You didn't choose that stuff. You didn't choose your classmates growing up. You, you didn't choose who you sat next to all the time in school. You didn't choose the teachers that your school hired. Your parents might have had some influence if they knew some people in the right places at school and whatever, and they might have gotten you to this particular teacher, but you had no control over who they hired. You know, growing up, you didn't choose the tragedies that you've experienced. No control over those things, whether they're world tragedies or something very personal to you. Nor did you create the good times that you've had all by yourself. You didn't create those by yourself. We didn't create the circumstances that have led to the lives that we have right now. Certainly not all the circumstances. The harvest is going on right now and not a single farmer made those crops grow. They planted them, prayed for rain, put a little fertilizer on there, some insecticide, watched over it, worried over it, rubbed her face a little bit, scratched her head just a tad, lost some sleep, but guess what you didn't do? You didn't make a single one of those crops grow, did you? <laughs> Not a single one. We don't control the economy or the weather or the decisions made by leaders on our behalf. We don't control those things, do we? We can't stop hurricanes or earthquakes, or tornadoes, or people who text and drive. You can't stop any of those things. You can't stop the traffic, or people that take more than 20 items into the express lane at Walmart. You can't stop those people. <laughs> They're going to do it. You just got to deal with it. Right now, in this moment, you cannot force your heart to beat. You cannot force it to stop beating. You can't do it. And those are just the physical things. That you can't control. Uh, that's not to mention the emotional and psychological and chemical things that you just can't control. I could go on and on about all those things, but needless to say, in every area of life, we are more helpless than we care to admit. We have the illusion of control. 
We like to think we're in control. Well, hold on now just a second. Now, I'm a self-made man, okay? Let's start laying it out, and we'll prove to one another that neither of us are truly self-made. And in no area of life are we more helpless than the spiritual. The Bible tells us that we're, we're more deeply flawed, we're more deeply flawed and more, more deeply helpless than we want to, to realize or to confess. You know, I can't do anything about the fact that I was created both with a material side and an immaterial side. There is both a physical side and a spiritual side to me. There is a side that you can see and a side that no one can quite put their finger on. I didn't create that. We all know it's there. We all know that points to something outside of us, something immaterial that we can't quite see, but that we know exists. We, we know that that points to, to maybe, just maybe, that it means that I'm here for some purpose and maybe accountable to someone that's beyond myself. And the situation that the Israelites were to look back on and commemorate is really the perfect metaphor for us when we think about our spiritual helplessness. They were in slavery in Egypt. They had no way out. They were bound up. They were controlled. They, they couldn't get themselves free. And they cried out to the Lord because they were helpless. Do you realize you don't pray unless you recognize that you're helpless? The, the reason that many of us, this is a side note, by the way, free stuff in the sermon. The, many, the reason many of us don't pray on a regular basis is because we feel like we got it under control. And we wouldn't admit that because we're in church. And we're good Christian people here in Elm Grove, right? We wouldn't admit that, but many of us don't spend time in a regular basis in desperate prayer before the Lord because we figure we got it under control. I'll call on the Lord when I can't control it anymore. And we're fooled into thinking that we have any measure of control. They were in slavery, helpless, no control over it. And so are we in a spiritual sense, dead in our sin, in need of a Savior, and apart from Jesus, helpless. And just like them, we will never move forward until we admit to ourselves and to the Lord that we're helpless. And only then can we experience God's solution of His provision. The Feast of Booths was to commemorate their time in the wilderness what God had done for them during that time. They spent 40 years out there camping out for 40 years. The Israelites, when they first entered the wilderness, were a very new nation. They had spent 400 years in slavery. They were slaves, used to being told what to do and when to do it, accustomed to being slaves and nothing else, having everything done for and to them. They had... When they arrived in the wilderness, they had no food, they had no water, they had no army, they had no defenses, they had no government, they had no organized worship, and they had no spiritual leaders. They just showed up in the wilderness, God had led them out of slavery, and here they were, helpless. In Exodus chapter 13, the story of the plagues ends. When God sends the final plague, the plague of the, the, the death of the firstborn, the Israelites are then let go by Pharaoh. Finally, he says, get out of here. I don't want you here anymore. And then he realizes he just lost his labor force. And so in Exodus 14, he chases them down. They get to the Red Sea, a place where they could not cross without God's intervention. 
And then in Exodus chapter 15, after God does intervene, they sing songs of praise. One chapter later, about a month and a half of time later, they grumble, complain to Moses and to Aaron because they don't have any food. And they say it would have been better if we just stayed in Egypt where we had all the food that we ever wanted. (laughs) In Exodus chapter 17, they complain because they didn't have any water. In Exodus chapter 17 as well, they are attacked by a foreign army. And the only way that they can win the battle is if two guys hold up the arms of Moses in the air. And any time his arms fall, they start to lose. And any time his arms are held in the air, they begin to win the battle. This army of slaves. In Exodus chapter 20, God gave them the law because they had no way to govern themselves. And in Exodus chapter 25, God instituted the different offerings and religious rituals because they didn't know how to worship him. God's solution for all that they lacked, for all their helplessness, was provision. Because he is the one who led them out of slavery. They didn't do it. All they did was cry out because they were helpless. He parted the Red Sea as they were terrified that they were going to be destroyed by the Egyptian army. He destroyed the Egyptians in that Red Sea after it came back together. He gave them food from the sky and from the ground, and he gave them water out of a rock. He won the battle against the Amalekites. He gave them the law. He showed them how to worship. Who they were, what they had, where they were going, how they became a great nation, their safety, all of that stuff and more was given to them not by their own effort because they were clueless and helpless, but by God himself. And then look in verse 43 of Leviticus chapter 23 at what God says there at the end of that little verse, sort of almost tacked on, He says this, I am the Lord your God. Over and over and over and over in Scripture, particularly in the Old Testament, you see this repeated, I am the Lord, or I am the Lord your God. Dozens and dozens and dozens of times, God says to them, I am the Lord your God. When he gave them the law, here's what he says, I am the Lord your God, so you are to follow me. When he made demands of them, I am the Lord your God. When he told them to take care of the poor, I am the Lord your God, implying that, look, I'll take care of you, you take care of them. When he called them to repentance, he said, I am the Lord your God, you answer to me. When he told them what they would experience in the promised land, he said, the land that what? I am giving you. Not the land that you're going to earn from me. The land I am giving you. And he talked about houses they didn't build and vineyards and crops they didn't plant and wells they didn't dig. He says, when you get there, you remember I am the Lord, your God. An exclusive relationship. One built on loyalty and submission and obedience. I am the Lord your God. That's the theme of Leviticus and really the theme of all of Scripture. From the very beginning to the very end, I am the Lord your God. Something we should never forget. God reminded them of that over and over and over, that without Him, they are nothing. Jesus gave us the same reminder. John chapter 15, He talks about the fact that we are to abide or remain in Him. And He says, apart from me, you can do nothing. You're helpless. Jesus said over and over, I am. He said, I am the bread of life. I am living water. I am the way, the truth, and the life. I am the resurrection and the life. The theme of scripture is, I am the Lord your God. You are helpless. Let me provide what you need. 
Our response is to be very, very simple. Our response is to be one of dependence. And we don't like this. I'm going to tell you real quick. We, especially as Americans, we, we, we do not like it. It flies in the face of everything we believe we should be about. And I struggle with the same thing. I really do. I do not like to depend on anyone for anything. My, my dad will joke, but he's halfway serious. He'll tell you that when I entered high school and began to play baseball for the program that I did in high school in Louisville, it was a full-time job, and he jokes and he says, you left home at 14. Because <laughs> I was gone. I'd leave, I'd leave for school. I'd get there at 7 in the morning. I'd get home at 7 or 8 at night, and I'd do my homework. And I, that was it. I was, I, that was my job. And so I learned very early that I had to do what I had to do and I had to be who I had to be and it was really up to me to do that. And so you can see for for even your preacher, sometimes dependence on God can be a difficult thing. I've had to be independent, my own person, stand on my own. Maybe many of you have stories that would be similar that have led you to a point where you say, I don't want to depend on anybody for anything. I don't want to ask for help. I don't want to act like I need any help. I've got to act like I've got it all together. And yet, the posture that we are to have toward God cannot be one of independence, but only one of dependence on Him. I want you to write somewhere on your on your little outline there, your paper. There's some space on the front, or maybe you've got some room on the back. And I just, I, this will be something for you to work through this week. I want you to write first the words, I cannot. Cannot is all one word. I cannot. I cannot. And then put a blank. Some of you got that. I cannot, then put a blank. And then below that, or somewhere else on the paper, put I did not, and then put a blank. Okay, so here's what we're working through. I cannot, and just put a blank, and then I did not, and put a blank. Here's what I want you to be thinking of. If you need if you need something to go on this week, you say, look, I don't know where to start in my time with God. I, I want to spend time with the Lord each day. I know there's great value in that, but I don't know where to start. Start with this. Start with a meditation on here's what I cannot do for myself. Here's what I cannot create. Here's what I, whatever. Here's, I've talked about all the things you can't control. I cannot what? I guarantee you'll make a list that'll fill up that paper and several others. I cannot. And then I want you to look back in your own history. Just as the Israelites were called to in the festival of Booths, as they lived out in the wilderness for seven days, I did not, and then put a blank. Good, bad, and otherwise. Whatever it may be. I did not. And then fill up that as well. Lord, as I look back on my life, God, I, I, you know, I did not create this for myself. I did not choose this. I did not do this on my own. Whatever it may be. And then next, I want you to put the word God and then a blank. And I want you to, to work again through those things. And maybe you've sort of got, okay, I cannot... And so God does this. I did not, and so God did this. And I, I, I hope that you'll take the time to work through the I cannot, I did not, and then but God, and whatever. And then finally, the, the, last, the last little part to write down, so I will, and then put a blank. So I will. 
What is it about what you cannot and did not do that God did for you? And so what then will you do in response? I hope that as we sang earlier, that it will be simply, I will depend, I will trust and obey. He says, I am the Lord your God. It is a call to trust. It is a call to dependence. It is a call to obedience. Let me encourage you this week to take some time to camp out. To take some time to get away from your normal routine and say, I will go into a spot somewhere that I will be by myself and I will have no distractions and I will reflect on God's provision. I will reflect on how I need to depend on Him in every single area of my life, in my thoughts, in my work, in my decisions, in my actions, in my responses, in my feelings, in my choices, in my prayers, in my conversations, my attitudes, my efforts, my worries, all of it. How can God invade every part and how can dependence on Him invade every part of your life? Let me encourage you to camp out every single day to recognize your own helplessness apart from Jesus and His death and resurrection on the cross. Camp out every day to recognize God's provision in your life and to reiterate your dependence on Him. Camp out every day on those things. The Israelites were called to have a celebration of their dependence on God. Imagine that. A celebration of helplessness. A celebration of God's provision. A celebration of dependence. And maybe as we close this morning, you would simply celebrate, God, I'm helpless, but praise you, you're not. God, I'm dead in my sin, but thank you that through Jesus I've been made alive in Christ. And Lord, I celebrate my need for you and who you are and what you've done. Celebrate your helplessness. Celebrate God's provision and celebrate your dependence on Him. Let's pray together. There's time at the end of each service for you just to reflect a little bit. And I don't know all that God has said to you, and I'm not going to preach the sermon again, just to be sure you got it. But I do hope that the Lord has spoken to you this morning. That's my prayer. And maybe He's exposed in you that, that independent streak, and He needs to break it this morning. So that you and I, once again, will learn that apart from Him, we're nothing. That He's done it all. And that we just simply need to depend on Him in faith in every area of our lives. And so maybe this morning, your prayer would be that prayer of dependence. And Lord, I give it to you again. And Lord, I'm, I'm so dependent on you. And God, this morning I celebrate my helplessness. And I turn my life, every bit of it, over to you. I want you to know Jesus loves you. And in your helplessness, the Bible tells us in Romans chapter 5 that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. While we were at our most helpless moment, He loved us and died for us. And He loves you. And He died for you. Depend on Him this morning and this week. Lord Jesus, thank You. Thank You that we can be helpless and still come to You. That we don't have to do anything. We don't have to make up for our sin. We don't have to try real hard. Lord, all we need to do is believe. 
And so, Lord, we thank you for your provision of salvation for our lost souls. We thank you, Lord, for your provision that extends to every area of our lives. We pray, Lord, we recognize again our dependence on you and celebrate it this week. Recognizing that we cannot and we did not, but God can and God did. And so we will trust and we will obey and we will depend. May that be the theme of our lives as we leave here today. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Stand with me if you